Hebrews. We pick up our study of Hebrews, and if you're visiting back there, um, just please know that we love to have fun. We take the Bible seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. <clears throat> and uh, we've been working through the book of Hebrews. We like to teach expositionally, so we've started in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, this is our 12th time, I think, and we're in chapter 3, verse 1. So the, this is the word of God, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, God's word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, and the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Let's pray one more time. Father... May the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, we go to Chicago every Christmas and uh, some other times too. And my brother has three triplets. Yeah, triplets, that's three. He has triplets. And um, so they're now, what, 13 and a half or so, I believe, aren't they? Um, But a couple of times when we've gone up there, you know, we're always looking for something to do with three kids of the exact same age. And uh, we've gone at least a couple of times to this thing called Medieval Nights or is it Medieval Nights, something like that? Some kind of, oh, what is it? Medieval Times? Yeah, Medieval Times. And, and if you've, anybody have been to Medieval Times? They're actually kind of fun. I mean, the horses are clippity-clopping, and everybody's all dressed up, and there's jousting, and they serve you like a half a chicken you're supposed to eat with your bare hands, and, and the food's actually pretty good, and it's, it's kind of a cool experience. But, um, you know, when you walk in, you just kind of, you walk in like, a, like a, a sheep, you know, and you get checked in, and they give you a paper crown that you're supposed to wear, That's, which is immediately thrilling to me. So they give me this crown, it's yellow, and they hand it to me very ceremoniously, and they say, this is yours, you're yellow, and you hate green. And I'm going, jeez, I hate green, that's great. Well, you know, 30 minutes later, I'm like, green, you stink! You know, and the triplets, we're like going, one, two, three, you stink! And the green guy comes out, and then when the yellow guy marches out on his horse, we're like, "Uh uh-huh, green, Brad Pitt's here now, what are you going to do now, you know? And so you can really get into it, and it's the same thing I do when I watch a football game. Somewhere during the second quarter, I ask whoever I'm with what color shirt I'm supposed to root for, and somebody tells me, and I'm like, oh, burgundy, yay! And I get kind of excited about it and all that stuff. Well, I I say that because I suspect uh, that's not unlike the way Moses was perceived by the Jews. Now, you've got a national Jewish identity. You've got a religious Jewish identity. But they kind of looked at Moses kind of like, that's our guy. You know, we're from Cleveland, so whoever plays the big game in Cleveland, we're that team. And uh, Moses is our guy. 
They had kind of a Moses is our guy thing. They had the same kind of a thing with, uh, with Abraham. You know, if there was a Mount Rushmore back then, uh, you would have certainly had Moses on there. You would have had Abraham on there. I suspect Noah and David would be on there too. Um, and probably Jeremiah and Isaiah and lots of other people. But, uh, but Moses was a biggie for the Jews. And um, I'm just going to shoot here real quick. You know, in, um, in uh, the book of Matthew, you don't have to turn because I'm almost there. Just to quickly, Matthew 12. Um, yeah, Matthew 12, 1 and 2, it says, At that time, Jesus was um, going through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck ears of corn and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do it, uh, on the Sabbath. And so basically what they're saying to Jesus is, Hey, 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 Jesus, it's the Sabbath. We see what your disciples are doing. They're picking corn. They're working on the Sabbath. And what they don't like is that it is the law that was given them, of course, by God, but also by Moses. They're going the Mosaic law, Sinai, this deep connection (coughs) with Moses and his work on behalf of the people. And Jesus goes on, by the way, to say the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath, which they don't. They don't misunderstand that at all. He's saying, I'm greater than Moses, a giant claim uh, from Jesus. So you can see that the, the Jewish people, uh, if you just look at, the, if you just look at um, their belief of Moses, they see that he was divinely appointed, right? He was um, miraculously positioned by God. I mean, the way he made his way into Pharaoh's household and all that stuff. Um, he was used by God to deliver the Jews from Egyptian slavery, the Exodus. He led them in the Exodus. That's pretty great, Moses. Um, he was the greatest prophet to date. He penned Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It's a pretty big thing. Uh, he was given the law of God. And so for the Jew, no one surpassed Moses. Um, you know, they would say, um, hey, our father's Abraham to Jesus. And they would claim Abraham. They would say, hey, look at Mount Rushmore. But no one was greater to the Jew uh, than Moses. So it's no small thing when Jesus shows up and he makes all kinds of bold claims, claims that seem kind of foreign to us, but uh, claims that would, uh, were very powerful to the first hearers um, in uh, Jesus' time. And I'll tell you too, you know, the, even in the Gospel of John, Let me just read this to you. Uh, This is from the Gospel of John. It says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know what that's right after? That's in chapter one of the Gospel of John. That's right after, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Um, That's right after um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This idea that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. My whole point in starting with that is this, uh, to find the vibe of the recipients of this letter, um, whoever the writer was, to find the vibe, uh, we know that the writer clearly knows his audience, and uh, he repeats his message to them to be faithful they're going through a hard time. It's a, it's a persecuted time. It's an early church. They're under an emperor. And um, they face pressures that you and I don't face. Um, yeah, people make fun of us. Uh, do you know that they crucify Christians in this world? There are horrifying pictures you can look up online about it. Uh, here they make fun of us. Uh, these people were scared of their door being kicked in and their families torn asunder. Uh, 
this, this early church was, was under lots of pressures. And so what the Hebrew writer is saying is that Jesus is supreme in all things. He's trying to comfort and steady them. He's trying to give something to hang their faith on uh, that they might continue. And so our big idea here for today is this. What God did in Jesus safeguards your soul. Now, do you think that's a relevant message for you? I think that's what the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. He's saying, hey, what God did in Jesus safeguards your soul. That's a message they need to hear. But isn't it a message that you need to hear? What God did in Jesus safeguards your soul, safeguards your soul from the pressures of this world, safeguards your soul even from your own sabotaging of yourself. What God did in Jesus safeguards your soul. What could be more relevant than that? So let's look at our first point. It is this, God's apostle. Now, it's interesting to call Jesus an apostle um, has a curious ring to it, doesn't it? Um, Because we've heard the word apostles before. We commonly know them as the 12 dudes that Jesus picked. And of course, uh, Paul is the apostle also. He was handpicked by Jesus and sent on a mission by Jesus and so on. But what's so unique about this word, the apostle, it's in verse one here. It says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. What's interesting about that is right here, it's the only time Jesus in the New Testament is called an apostle. Now, the verb is used. It's, it's said that he was sent, okay, uh, John 10, 36. But here it's a description of him, that he is an apostle and high priest. Now, what's so, inter- what's so important for understanding the idea of a, an apostle is that it's not just some isolated designation. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie The Apostle with uh, Robert Duvall, at one point he walks down into the river and he picks up some water and he pours it on his head and he, goes, he basically goes, I'm an apostle, sploosh. Well, guess what? You can't do that. When you see people on time going, oh, I'm bishop this and I'm bishop this, well, I'm apostle, blah, blah, blah. Well, you can't do that. Apostle is a very specific thing, a specific office. It includes the identity of the sender as well as the mission. Now, if you would turn to uh, the book of Acts, uh, keep your finger where you are, of course, but turn to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Uh, Paul gives an account of his conversion to King Agrippa. And he says, um, <laughs> he says in verse 16, oh, let's say for verse 15, uh, Paul is describing the scene, uh, Acts 26, verse 15. He says, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So very specific uh, voice there. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. So you've got a sender, right? You've got a designated guy. You've got a sender. It's the Lord Jesus, and he's got a mission. He says, he continues, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. He goes on, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, I'd call that a very clear summoning and a very clear mission. And so Paul, the apostle Paul, has a sender and he's got a mission given to him by the sender. All right, 
Um, another one. Um, let me just flip over here to uh, Matthew real fast. Uh, Matthew chapter 4. You don't have to get there. I'm already here. Uh, but Matthew 4 verse 19. Uh, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, uh, Galilee, Jesus saw his two brothers, uh, Simon and, uh, and Andrew. And uh, he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You've got a, someone who summons and then you've got a mission. Um, that's, that's, that's what an apostle is, someone who is summoned and sent on a mission. So um, in our passage here today, back in uh, Hebrews... You've got uh, a very clear sender. Uh, it says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, uh, just as Moses was faithful uh, and so on. You've got the heavenly father sending Jesus on a mission uh, to save, uh, to, um, to give us confidence uh, and a reason for boasting. So there's a chief and a mission. Here the sender is God the father, and the apostle, it is said here, is Jesus. There's a mission. The mission is to be the great high priest. The mission is to make intercession as the priest. The mission is to be the sacrifice himself, to be the payment for law transgressed. The mission is to mollify God's indignant wrath. The mission is to be made an exchange of righteousness for an accursedness that we might receive his righteousness and be forgiven. That's a mission. And so in that sense, Jesus is an apostle. And so the first Jewish readers would see that. And I think that that helps us grasp the deep significance that this would be for them. And then that's not enough. Paul fires the bazooka. All of a sudden, he's, I mean, if it's not already awesome and wonderful, He says this, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, and the bazooka here that he fires is Moses, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful. Um, And and we read that and we go, oh, isn't that nice? Moses gets a little bit of cred. That's not what he's doing. Um, Not at all. Look at verses three and four. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So he's going, hey, Jews, I know you love Moses. I know Moses is so highly esteemed. Remember, he's writing to believers, but still they're under pressure to, to turn away from their faith. They're still under pressure to go, God, is this really your plan? Because things are really rough right now. And so he's appealing to them in a way that they can really grip. And he says, just as Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. You know, you get that. A house is built by someone. Uh, the, the builder gets more glory than the thing that's been made. And uh, so basically he's saying, um, uh, Moses was great, but Jesus is so much greater. And the explanation expands even further. Uh, In verse five, it says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. That is a very clear depiction uh, for anyone who watches Downton Abbey. Uh, Because, you know, Carson, Carson, don't you like Carson? Some of you are like, downtown what? Um, but a servant has a very different status than Mary, the daughter of Lord Grantham. Very different to be a child of the owner and to be a servant of the owner, even, even though both are esteemed. 
So, an application for your life, uh, a reason that this matters to you. Um, a commentator named Raymond Brown says this. I just love it. He says, he, he, uses, he borrows, the, he, lifts the, he lifts the consider Jesus from the text here. He says, hey, 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 Christians, consider Jesus, for he constantly considers you and enters deeply and sympathetically into your needs. Isn't that a good takeaway? Consider Jesus. You know why? He constantly considers you. I mean, you got a personal God. You know, people always are, are, are groping around for things that make things more personal, and I want to get more personal. Well, you know what? A personal Savior died to win you personally. God personally gave you his word, and he personally put his personal spirit in you to personally illuminate this for you. He dwells with you. You can't get more personal than that. And that's why his word needs to be the center of our lives. But isn't that the kind of Savior you want, ladies and gentlemen? Um, a savior who considers you all the time and never looks away? I mean, even if you thought Christianity was idiotic and you thought it was a a ridiculous fairy tale, is that not at least magnetic and mesmerizing that a savior would be considering you all the time, that God would care about you personally and keep you faithfully? Here's another quote. In his mediatorial sonship, as expressed in the previous two chapters, It's in view here. Jesus is not just uh, over the house. No, excuse me. He's over the house, not merely in it. That's the thing. Moses is in the house. Jesus is over the house. This is the one who considers you. The one who's got all the authority and power. Not just a pal. Not just somebody that you kind of go through it with. But he's the Lord. This is the one who considers you. What God did in Jesus safeguards your soul. Jesus was the great and final sacrifice. He was the only begotten son. He is the living word, the final prophet. He's the reigning king, the king who fulfills all things. He's the perfect priest. His work makes prayerful intercession. And uh, he's the one who safeguards your soul. Let's look at our second point. God's house. So we've got God's apostle, and we're now going to look at God's house. That word shows up, actually, I think, I didn't count them, but I think six times or so um, in this passage. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a common Christian word, isn't it? We talk about our, ourselves in terms of being brothers and sisters. Uh, we're taught by the Savior to address God as Father. Uh, Paul says even Abba Father. And uh, we're a family. We're a church family. That's um, no small thing. But, uh, you know, in Galatians 6.10, um, Christianity is described as a household of faith. Um, other translations put it a family of faith. The NIV says a family of believers. And uh, like I say, house is mentioned repeatedly in this passage. And, of course, it's a, the illustration of a house uh, is a building. That's true. But uh, it's also the idea of a household. It is the idea of a, a deeply... Um, in entwined family that's connected organically. So God's house, his people, it was basically built in two stages. It's got two apostolic ministries in a way. You've got Moses' apostolic ministry. He was commissioned by God and sent. He's the biggie. But then Jesus is the, the ultimate one. He's the last one. He's far superior to Moses as a prophet Moses was a prophet. He's far superior to Moses as a priest. Moses was a priest. He's far superior to Moses as a ruler, a leader, a king. Jesus is far superior. Not to mention, Jesus is the maker. 
the son, the homeowner, um, he's, he's over the house, not merely in it. And so you've got this one people. Now, um, application for your life. Bob Wood. Bob Wood here at our church. Um, you know, the Woods have been so kind. Basically, when Dr. Young went to Central Church uh, from Ocala, Florida, bruised and limping, uh, Dr. Jimmy Latimer hired him. Dr. Young gets on board, and there's this couple. Like, you know how every ministry has some kind of stable couple? They're not falling apart. They're faithful. You don't have to beg them to show up. You know, they're just there. And uh, that was Bob and Joanne for Dr. Young. So this wild guy shows up on the scene, and uh, they just come alongside him, and they, they, they take care of him and have assisted him all these years. Do you know that on Sunday morning... There's a staff prayer. I'm not in it because I'm leading, I'm rehearsing the band out there. But, uh, and after staff prayer for, I don't, how long, however long Grace of Van's been in existence, Bob Wood is the one guy that goes back to Dr. Young's office and prays with him. Did you know that? Every Sunday morning, Dr. Young prays with Bob Wood. Anyway, so we, I get hired. We get hired. And uh, the, the Woods look at us and they're like, yeesh. We thought that guy was cuckoo. Look at now, there's like extra weird. And they came alongside us too. And they were in our class every single week. And, and uh, they opened up their home. We had a zillion, zillion small group uh, things in their house. And, and I led worship in their living room a zillion times. I taught in their house a zillion times. And Bob Woods got this manner. I'm not going to do it because I have a sore throat. So I don't want to like infect you. Uh, but um, uh, when, you, when you show up on Bob's doorstep, he, uh, he opens up the door and uh, he puts out his hand and you shake his hand and he grips it and he says, come in this house and he pulls you. He just, he just grabs your hand and he pulls you in. And you know, we did single adult ministry back then. And you know, I was married with a hot lady and, um, and I found it to be comforting. Can you imagine being a single adult, uh, you know, 28 years old going, does God, what does God have in store for me? And this guy goes, come into this house. And he just pulls him in. Uh, it just felt so warm and rich and familial and beautiful. And I'm saying that uh, we get this kind of royal idea of what the son owning the, the estate is like here in this in this situation. He's, he operates as emissary. And in a real way, um, Jesus is saying, come on in this house. Um, you know, at least 10 times in John's gospel, uh, it says that Jesus was sent by the father. He was sent by the father, sent by the father. Here he's called an apostle. It talks about God's house. Why is that so in, uh, important? And why does, why does the, the, the gospel writer make such a point of making it clear that God, the Father, sent Jesus, sent Jesus, sent Jesus? Why is the writer of Hebrews saying that Jesus was an apostle? He was someone who was sent and had a specific mission. Why? Here's why. Friends, he came to get you. He came to have you. He came to win you. He came to do the necessary thing that would make your sins forgiven, make you cleaned up and acceptable. All the muck, all the stain removed, the righteousness of God given to you so that God can say, come in this house. 
roll that around your hearts for a few days and see if it doesn't give you a sense of assurance and joy and humility. Uh, Our last point, our confidence. We've got uh, God's apostle, God's house. Last point is our confidence. So let's look at verse six together. Uh, It says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Continuing, here we are. And we are his house. You know, we're included. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, it's... God's house. It's run by the Son of God. And because of all the stuff that's been said about what Christ specifically came to do, we get to be in that house. Joy. Isn't that a happy sense of security? That, uh, that the scripture writers is basically saying, God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this. Now come in his house. But at the same time, let's add a little coffee to the porter. Um, <laughs> who chuckled? Oh, look at you. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, one, one of the most beautiful systems of theology, one of the, if you've never heard the term before, one of the ways of understanding what the Bible is, understanding what this is, this, the history of God's redemption of his people. Yeah, uh, there's a system of theology called Reformed theology. I love Reformed theology. I'm a Reformed theology guy. I wouldn't say I'm a theologian, but I'm a Reformed guy. This is one of the benefits of of Reformed theology is being able to preach this. One week, I can get up and unabashedly say, you can't do anything to win your salvation. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. I get to say that. You can't do it on your own. You can't be good enough. You can't manufacture it. I can't sell it to you and you can't buy it. I love to be able to say that with authority and passion. But then, in my system of theology, I get to come back the next week or maybe even in the next sentence, like today, and I can say this. Receive the Lord of glory. Accept him as savior. Make a decision exercise faith. Come. I'll tell you, I've taught a lot of retreats with, with kids, senior high, junior high, elementary school. I just did a little elementary school chapel Friday morning. And I've prayed many a prayer on many a retreat. And I'll say, I'll do this. I, I'd love to do this. I'll say, clo- everybody close your eyes. And I, all, all close their eyes. And I say, no, no, you too. Close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. And I'll say something like this. I am a minister of the Lord, and I am telling you to come. I'm going to pray, and I am asking you to, in a sense, take my hand and let me lead you to the cross where you will decide to come to this Savior. I love to be able to say that. I love to be able to say the one week, you can't do it on your own, and then the next week, decide. Now, the question is, does... uh, is a dead man made alive and then the person decides? Or does it just a person decide? Well, you, you can figure that out. But my point is, the Bible doesn't shy away from saying, um, work out your salvation with trembling and fear, for it is God who works in you. The Bible's never uncomfortable with that tension. Never. It puts that tension out. It invites you to scrutinize it. All right, all that to say, 
This relates to verse 6. In verse 6, you've got this great, wonderful thing. Um, We are his house. You know, God's done this. God's done this. God's done this. We are his house. What a praise that we can be safe and secure. We're safeguarded in what Jesus did. But then it, it introduces this tension. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And listen, he'll say that throughout the book of Hebrews. He'll, 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 temper, he'll temper the news so that we don't abuse grace. Now, last couple things. My closing illustration. Here's a Bloodworth Life tweet. If you're on Twitter, uh, you can follow Bloodworth Life and you get one tweet every morning. And uh, it's something that's been said in this class. And it's, I like to think that if you read all of them, you would walk away fairly sane. Um, uh, just because it's, it's, those are labored over. But check this one out. The sacrificial substitutionary offering of Jesus Christ was accepted by God. Mull on that and drink in assurance. Think about that. The offering of Jesus was accepted by God. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. It's accepted by God. Accepted. You know what that means? It means you're safeguarded. That's what it means. God accepted the payment. That means you're free. If Christ really is the last prophet, if Christ really is the ultimate deliverer of the captives, if Christ really is the final arbiter between God and man, and if Christ really is the accepted and final sacrifice, then guess what? It is finished means it is finished. It means that what God did in Jesus safeguards your soul. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we who know you understand that um, something strange took place at the foot of the cross. Our souls were rattled. Our lives were unraveled. Any um, faith we had in our own efforts dissolved, dissolved in penitence and tears, dissolved in humility, realizing that the only way to uh, a holy God is by the way he has made. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that uh, it's 100% his work on the cross and 0% us. It is by grace we have been saved and uh, we celebrate that grace. It's a mystery, Lord. We don't understand it. We can't comprehend it fully. We never will. But we thank you. Thank you for saving sinners. Thank you for the plan of salvation. Thank you that we can now be received by you and even call you Father because it is finished. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone.